You're listening to The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. On this episode... Why does Gangnam and so much of Korea feel artificial and improvised? How are urban apartment complexes like undemocratic military bases? And will Seoul, a major megacity like London, New York, or Tokyo, end up just another playground for tourists and the super rich? Maybe not. Here to help us explore all this and more is linguist and former Seoul National University Department of Korean Language academic and author of the new Korean language book, Exploring Cities, Robert Thauser. Robert, welcome to episode 87 of The Korea File. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm a fan of your uh, uh, podcast, so it's, uh, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you. That's really cool. Well, you're a, you're a self-employed linguist and a writer based occasionally in Seoul and more often in Rhode Island in the United States. So um, describe for us your linguistic area of expertise. What do you focus on? Well, um, my main focus has always has been... Um, third language acquisition, which is the learning of a language after you learn a second language. So in the Canadian context, most Canadians learn French and English in the school system. And then if a Canadian, say, learns Japanese or Korean or another language, that would be third language acquisition. So I'm, that's what I specialize in. I don't do a lot of research on that recently, but that's my expertise. And then I also focus on sociolinguistic aspects of language acquisition. So ah, that is thing, yeah. that's like things like politeness, um, uh, you know, uh, different approaches to how language is used in society. So often you'll have a, 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 what happens is people will be influenced by a language that they already know, obviously. And sometimes if you're learning a third language, the influence might come from a second language, not your native language. And okay. yeah, I kind of focus on those interactions between different languages, particularly so in the sociolinguistic area. So that's so interesting because in, in Korea, I mean, you, you have a background with, with this sort of sociolinguistics and with being a, a person right. who's, who studies language. But you're also really well known in Korea as a Hanuk preservation activist. Uh, like I mentioned, you also worked as a prophet SNU's language education department. Um, but in a recent interview with the Korea Times, you say that in terms of your relationship with the city of Seoul, you are a lifelong aficionado and student. What, is that, what does that mean? And when did you first come to Korea and, and why? Well, the lifelong aficionado and student, that means Seoul kind of is, is, always fascinates me, but I never feel like I really know it which is strange because a lot of people interview me saying, you know, thinking that I know about Seoul and I should tell them about Seoul, which I do. But from my perspective, I'm always learning something because every visit to Korea or when I lived there, you know, I would always discover new things. Um, there's always a part of the city that I've never been. Parts of the city that I know well change, right? Your favorite, you know, place goes out of business and some, you know, new building comes up. So, Seoul is always changing. So even places that you think you know, you really don't know. And then there's always learning more. So I, that's one of the interesting things about Seoul is you never really 
are finished with it because I'm, you know, I'm always learning. Right. But you came to Seoul for you at first came to Seoul in like what year? First year. The first, my first visit to Seoul was when I was studying in Japan and I needed to extend my stay in Japan. And that was 1982. I came to Korea. I was, I spent nine days in Korea and seven of them were in Seoul. So that was a short visit. And then I, you know, went back to Korea in uh, 1983, 1984, and studied Korean language at Seoul National University. So that was my first extended, you know, time of residence in Korea. And why I studied Korean is because I, in college, in university, I uh, majored in Japanese, and I, you know, took an interest in learning a language that was related to Japanese. And I had a lot of Korean friends in my Japanese class who always you know, seem to never study, but get very high grades. Okay. <laughs> they, they told me because, you know, the languages are related. So I kind of wanted to explore that connection between Korean and Japanese and cultural issues as well. Um, and a lot of that was because I had Korean friends when I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan in the early mm. 1980s. Well, and when you mentioned sort of how Seoul and Korea is this sort of endlessly changing space, which which makes us kind of fascinated with it, it reminds me that like, it's also this, you know, like the, the Korea is an unfinished country. It's a divided country. It's it's a country that, that is sort of just very open-ended or, or un- inconclusive. And so watching the speech of change, I think, is is fascinating in maybe a different way than than the change that we see in our own countries. Um, okay, but like I want to get to I want to get to a couple rounds of a little game called "Where Have You Lived?" Korea edition, because I think you might have okay. lived around the country. So I lived in Seoul for two years in total. Uh, how about you? I've lived in Seoul for uh, eleven years. Oh my God! Okay, all right. Um, I've lived elsewhere. I lived in Ansan, Gimhae, Suwon and rural Jeju, around one year for each of them. Um, did you live in any other Korean cities? No. Well, I lived in Taejeon for about two years. Okay, what were you doing there? I was teaching English at uh, what is now the undergraduate part of KAIST. So I was out, out in the outskirts of Taejeon, and that was from 1987 to 1988. So I saw a lot of the democracy movement stuff from the perspective of being in Taejeon. Well, okay, so, so, so now that we've established kind of our um, <clears throat> geographic bona fides in Korea, let's do a back and forth. You've lived, uh, you've lived around the world. You've lived in a bunch of places. Um, I have two, so I wanna, I wanna name a city and the, the, time, the time that I lived there, and, and you respond with your own example, okay? I have a lot of examples, this might, this might go on. Okay, so um, <clears throat> uh, Ontario, Canada, Kitchener, Ontario. And- Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Prairie, Alberta. Small town, Alberta. Camrose, Alberta. Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Pawtucket, Rhode oh. Island. Okay. Um, Santiago de Cuba, uh, Cuba, uh, for me, one semester of university. Well, yeah, what's the most like odd place you've lived? Um, the most odd place, probably, it sounds strange to answer this way, but probably given the trajectory of my life, Dublin, Ireland for two years. Oh, what were you doing there? I was a oh. PhD student at Trinity College, Dublin. Okay, and I, I, I had three years in Taiwan. How many years were you in Japan? I was in Japan for 13 years, and wow. I lived in three places in Japan. Um, <laughs> I lived in Kyoto for about six years, uh, and uh, Kagoshima for four, and then Kumamoto for three. 
and wow. Kumamoto and Kagoshima are near each other. They're both on the island of Kyushu. So I'm kind of, I've never lived in Tokyo, which is, I've been there many times, of course. Um, I've always lived the west side of Japan. Okay. Um, and uh, I also lived in Toronto briefly, and I've, I've been in Montreal off and on for uh, seven years. Okay, mo- mo- moving on. Uh, and that's interesting. Thank you. Um, to the listener, uh, thank you for listening and taking, taking, going along with us into that deep dive in our, into our respective geographical living experiences. And, and the reason I wanted to sort of talk through those examples a little bit was because your new book, which is written entirely in Korean, is called Exploring Cities. And in it, you uh, talk about uh, and explore your experience living in multiple cities in Korea, Japan, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Ireland. So how did the inspiration, the idea for this book come about? Well, it came about um, because it started with the Hanuk preservation activities that you mentioned before in the early 2010s when I lived in Seoul and and that led to learning about all kinds things about how cities in Korea are governed, how decisions are made about things. And then in 2014, I came back to the United States and I <clears throat> lived in Ann Arbor for two years, which is my hometown. And of course, you can't really go back home. That's one thing I learned in those two years. Uh, as much as I love Ann Arbor, I, I also had I was looking at it from the perspective of having lived, been away for 29 years, and it was interesting, the changes and how I changed. And then I moved to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where my sister, she, my sister lives in Providence. Um, Pawtucket is, the neighboring, is a neighboring city. And so I was kind of dealing with thinking about how I was relating to different places that, you know, I had connections with. And that was the the gestation of the book was how one person interacts with a city on an intellectual level, say, you know, thinking about the city in terms of big issues like gentrification and all that, but also how you interact with the city on a personal level and mm. those how those associations, personal associations with the city frame your view of the city. So trying to balance a subjective and objective look at cities. Well, I'm really, and I'm looking forward to getting into that, but real quick, what are the cities that the book explores? Uh, first, the, the four Korean cities. Four Korean cities are Seoul, Daejeon, Daegu, and Cheonju. And I never lived in Daegu or Cheonju, but I visit there often and I wanted to write about them. Okay, and, and the, the other six uh, global cities? It would be, and in the United States, it's Ann Arbor, where I was born and grew up, and then uh, Providence, Rhode Island, where, where I, the area where I live now. And then I also wrote about Las Vegas and New York, which I've never lived in, but my mother used to live in Las Vegas, so I visited frequently. It's a very interesting, strange place. And then uh, New York, I visit often, and I wanted to talk about that. And then uh, in Ireland, it's Dublin, where I lived when I did my PhD at Trinity College, Dublin, and the UK. I never lived in the UK, but be, for various reasons, I visited London a lot. And so I wanted to put London in to kind of pair it with New York, you know, the two big global cities. And um, then, then, it's the four, then it's four cities in Japan. And the three that I mentioned that I'd lived in, Kyoto, Kumamoto, and Kagoshima. And then I had to talk about Tokyo because I wanted, I visited there many times and I wanted to pair that sort of with London and New York and talk about those cities. And 
make some connections with Seoul. Okay, and so and so it's yeah, so it's more than ten cities. It's actually a lot of cities. It's Fourteen, yeah. So 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 in the book, um, yeah, the juxtaposition of all these cities in like one book gives the reader a contextual lens for understanding the changes, aesthetics, and the potential futures of the respective cities. And for instance, like you write that Seoul's Gangnam neighborhood feels artificial and improvised, but when you compare it to Tokyo's Yamanote, a contrasting commercial center, uh, that emerged organically over time. So, so yeah, tell us more about those sort of contrasts. Well, um, it, 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 it's interesting when it, it, the part about the book about Gangnam was more about how I felt about Gangnam when I was first learning about coal in the 1980s and 1990s, but particularly the 1980s. So that was in the Korea Times interview was taken a bit out of context, but um, at the time in the 1980s, Gangnam was new. I mean, there it was just, you know, it, was, it had just grown out of you know, fields um, in the 1970s. So it was really new and felt, you know, like there was, like it had been built yesterday. Um, Tokyo's Yamanote, which has a similar vibe to Gangnam, emerged from the samurai district part of what was Edo before the Meiji Restoration. So geographically, they're much closer. In other words, the Yamanote area is much closer to the commercial heart of, of Tokyo. Um, whereas in Gangnam is divided by the river and, you know, Namsan Park. So it's, it's, it's far from the historic center comparatively. It doesn't seem that way now, but it's, you know, it's, it's a bit removed from the traditional commercial center of Seoul. So I think that's one thing that just a geographical di di difference between the two. And of course, Tokyo's Yamanote emerged much more you know, organically um, through time, layers of history, you can feel there more than Gangnam because Gangnam was just, you know, fields in the 1970s. Right. And I'm, rem I'm remembering my own experience uh, living in Ansan. This was my first year in Korea and living in, um, oh, I forget the subway stop now, but it was, it was like the new development. So it was like, yeah, it had just been carved out like two years prior, but it was huge. And there was like, you know, a couple hundred thousand people living in it. And same thing in Gimhae. I lived in a, a, a newly developed a massive neighborhood with with tens of thousands of people. So so yeah. So it's it's interesting to think about how places uh, grow organically versus uh, in that sort of carved out. So but so with the multi city analysis that you have done, it's also helpful when you're kind of comparing and contrasting the problems that cities share in common. So like, what kind of similarities between cities uh, came up in, in things like gentrification or or problems with redevelopment? Well, it, that's that's a great question. Um, gentrification appears in most of the cities, but not all. And it, what is interesting is I, I I still haven't really gotten a handle on this, but Japanese cities don't seem to have gentrification. <laughs> And it's it, you, even in, in discourse about cities in Japanese, I read Japanese, obviously, because that was my college major and I lived there for 13 years. So I still read a lot of Japanese stuff. And you don't really see the word gentrification very much. Um, and what you'll see is, you know, recovery of the old, you know, historic commercial center or, you know, that kind of thing. But it's not gentrification. So gentrification and what is happening in, say, Japanese cities are a little bit different. And that means that the Japanese cities are kind of important for looking at how maybe to avoid the problems of gentrification. Well, why, why, is that, why is that the case in Japan? That really surprises me. Well, what, how come, why did it 
why does that not exist? That's so common everywhere in North America, everywhere in Korea. Everywhere in North America, everywhere in a lot of places in Europe and Korea. I don't know. <laughs> I shouldn't answer that way. But, you know, I wish somebody would write a really great PhD on this and turn it into a book that I could buy. But um, my guess is that it has to do with the way land is controlled in Japan, meaning that if you go back to, say, Jane Jacobs and her um, you know, famous book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, she argues that cities have four generators of diversity, which diversity is what gives cities life. And the first is uh, mixed use, and the second is walkability, short blocks, a lot of pedestrians. And the third is buildings of different sizes in different states of repair. And then the fourth is uh, population density. And Japanese cities have all of those. In other words, you can have you know, a, a building in downtown Kyoto and a tiny little plot with a tiny building next to it. So the building that's big and new might have very expensive office space or commercial space, but the little shop next door on a tiny building on a tiny plot of land, it might be much cheaper. Um, and so you get diversity in Japanese cities. And I think that might be one reason why they're able to avoid the problems of gentrification. Wow, so interesting. Okay, m m moving, on, moving on though, and then back to Korea. Uh, you you um, compared uh, the walled apartment complexes, common in Korean cities, and we've all seen them a million times uh, in Seoul and, and all over. You've compared them to undemocratic military bases, which I think is so interesting. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that was, um, that, that that came out in the interview. Um, what I mean by that is there are, I don't know if there are any democratic military bases. I guess I should preface that, but um, the, 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 um, I, what they what I mean by military bases is apartment complexes in Korea are built on the, with a big wall around them, first of all, and you, sometimes you don't see the wall, but there's a wall there. And that means the green space in most cases, I mean, the green space is for the people inside the wall. It's not for us outsiders walking on the street. So you have the apartment complexes are demarcated by a wall. There's an entrance which is dominated by a driveway that goes to an underground parking lot. And there's somebody at the entrance who will check who's coming and going. And that's very much like a military base, you know, checking if you belong there or not. It's not a public space. It's a private space. And it's, say, different from apartments, say, on, you know, somewhere in New York City or anywhere in, Canada, you know, Montreal or, you know, a big North American city where you have a building that's sitting on a sidewalk. It may have a doorman, but you can, you know, you're walking in front of the building. The, the, you're, you're on public space. And then where the property begins is private space. Um, there's no demarcation from the public space, um, mm -hmm. whereas the, the apartments in Korea have this very strict demarcation um, well, and a guard, guard at the right. door. Well, and that, that phrase resonated with me and maybe just because uh, like garrison garrison life is sort of baked into to being a Korean male anyways. And so the, the, the thought that this yeah. d development that's a quite Korean kind of uh, high rise uh, development. Yeah. <laughs> uh, military undemocratic military bases kind of rang true. Um, but that definitely just sort of preaches to like my own thinking. Okay. I, I want to move on though to um, 
uh, something else that you said in the article. You, you said that you don't want Seoul to become a city with a curated playground for tourists and the rich, surrounded by an ocean of drab bed towns full of tired middle-class commuters mixed with hidden poverty. And I mean, this is what we see largely in the United States and, and in parts of Canada, much of Canada, actually. Um, of course, you're speaking like about New York City, London, Tokyo, Paris. Um, do you see Seoul as having largely avoided those kinds of outcomes uh, that those other metropolises are grappling with? Um, unfortunately not, but uh, Seoul is, say, as far as a curated playground for tourists and the rich, it's nothing like New York, Paris, or London, where you have a lot of international money and, you know, the, 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 the real estate market has a, there's a large number of uh, foreigners, you know, buying real estate in those cities for investment purposes and things like that. That's not going on in Seoul. But you do have the situation where Seoul is becoming more expensive and then middle class or you know, younger people, middle class people, sort of average people are being forced to move out. And so I actually talked, to this, talked about this with a friend's wife, a friend of mine, his wife and I and their little daughter were playing. And, you know, I, I mentioned that she, she lives right in the center of uh, Seoul in the Hanok. Um, and uh, she said in her office, she's the only one. Everybody else lives out somewhere in Gyeonggi-do or Incheon, you know, because they, it's too expensive to live in Seoul. So I think mm -hmm. Seoul has already reached that point where a lot of people can't live in it, and therefore they have to commute very far from the surrounding areas. Um, mm -hmm. And building new buildings, a lot of people think, okay, well, just build new apartments in Seoul, and that'll lower the price. But that's not how life works. So you'll have a situation where they'll build a new apartment complex somewhere in the center of Seoul, and it immediately becomes a very expensive place. But you're you're mostly hopeful about the impact of modern urban development on Seoul compared to other cities. Is that right? Not necessarily hopeful, but okay. I, I, I don't want to – when I talk about these kind of things, um, say preserving Hanoks in the center of Seoul, that – is preserving something of historical value and that's preserving an old cityscape and you know th those are very small sections of the whole city of Seoul really so that preserving that is fine um, but I don't want to preserve everything that's old you know I don't want to preserve areas of Seoul that necessarily that uh, you know have substandard housing or that kind of thing it just depends so mm -hmm. I think that one thing that Korea has done well is I don't, you know, like the undemocratic military bases, the apartments um, as a place for me to live. But if you think of how the apartment, you know, how apartments in Korea have helped raise the standard of living over the last 30 years, they've played a role in raising the standard of living in Korea. Um, mm. Singapore is another country that has, you know, a lot of you know, boring apartment blocks, but the standard of living is very high. In Singapore, a lot of them are run by the government, so the government is intervening in the real estate market to keep them affordable. That's not happening in Korea, but uh, maybe it could. Um, so, you know, all, de all development is not a bad thing. Um, some development in Seoul has helped you know, raise the standard of living for, for people and the quality of life. Right. And your, your interview with the Korea Times ends with the statement that Seoul is Seoul 
and its global standing doesn't have much effect on the quality of life of its residents. But I think like you're saying, you're just talking about how it speaks more to how Seoul is not like a a globalized city in the same way that London or, or New York is, obviously. Um, and, 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 and that's much the same. And, and the challenges that Seoul sees, like in terms of sort of commuting in to work in a city you can't afford to live in, we see that in, in Busan as well, or, or Daegu or Daejeon. Like, like, is that common like around the country? Uh, Seoul is much worse because of its size. Um, uh, I don't know the situation in Busan, but Daegu is rather interesting. And that's one reason I like it is because normal people can live in the city very close to the downtown. Uh, It's not that expensive. And so you have, you can meet, you you can have people that you know who are living in the, you know, very close to the downtown, um, the center of the city. So Tegu is kind of interesting from that perspective. Uh, Mm -hmm. Other cities in Korea, Gwangju and Taejeon, for example, have are kind of divided between the new city and the old city. Um, but even those cities are much more affordable um, than than Seoul. So it's kind of, in Korea's case, it's more of a problem unique to Seoul simply because of the number of people that live there and are in the, and the surrounding area. That statement in the interview, it was related to, I think I, the context was something about, you know, Seoul wants to be this global city um, mm-hmm. and say, you know, there's this desire to have a landmark, for example. Um, just this fall, when I went to Korea, I asked people at a book talk, that I gave, um, what's the symbol of Seoul? And I got a thousand different answers. I mean, everybody at the, at the book talk had a different answer. Some said Seoul Tower, some said this, some said that. When I asked them, what is the symbol of Paris? Everybody said the Eiffel Tower. Then I said, how many people have been to Paris? About a third had raised their hand, which was kind of a lot, you know. But the people who hadn't been to Paris still thought that the Eiffel Tower was the symbol of Paris. So I think in the city government in Seoul, there's this desire to somehow make a symbol like Paris, you know, like the Eiffel Tower of Seoul, somehow, you know, that that's what a global city should have. But it doesn't need to be that way. And and in fact, I mean, maybe the symbol, the symbol of, of Seoul and of Korean, well, and of Seoul specifically, is like massive street protests that, that uh uh, bring down governments or, or the, the sort of like massive democracy movements that have, have been so, you know, influential and important in, in the history of Korea. Like it's the people, it's, it's the people of Seoul that are maybe people, yeah. the symbolic thing. Okay, let's pivot now to something else. Uh, I want to talk about city walks um, or in, in Korean, Dapsa. And uh, you mentioned Jane Jacobs before and uh, the Jane's walks, which happen every May, are a global uh, phenomenon and sort of organized thing where people do um, basically historic walking tours around cities. And it's really cool that this has picked up like all over the world. Um, I was really happy to get to participate in some in Korea, whether they were labeled as Jane's walks or or more sort of formal history walks like the ones that the uh, RASKB, the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch, organizes. And so in a piece uh, in the Korea Herald from 2016, there's another article that that you are featured in talking about the connection between the nostalgia. Okay, like why like why history walks sort of bl- were blowing up in the last decade where where people of a certain age would, would, would be getting really into these sort of historical tours. And so you talked about the connection between the nostalgia and leisure time of the 386 generation and the urbanism trend of city walks. So first, who are the 386 generation? The 386 generation is, that refers, it it comes from the old computer chip, um, you know, way back when. 
Um, and it, it refers to people who were who at that time were third in their 30s. They were born. They went to college in the 80s, and they were born in the 1960s. So it's people born in the 1960s. But the going to college in the 80s is a key point because that generation was the first large, you know, the first generation where a lot of people in Korea went to college. Um, and they were the, that generation was also the, when they were students, they were the leaders of the democracy movement in the 1980s. So really important generation in Korean history. Right. Okay. And so in, in this article, you talk about the, the rede- how the redevelopment of older neighborhoods into these apartment complexes, like what we were talking about before, it really spread in the 2000s. And by the end of that decade, a lot of the urban environment that 386ers had grown up with was disappearing or, was a, or had disappeared. And um, areas of the city that hadn't been redeveloped yet were becoming more and more rare. So... These walks offered them a, these 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 386ers a chance to connect with like childhood memories, which is really sweet. And in areas where demolition had been planned, these walks offered them a chance to like lament about the pace of change, to experience like full nostalgia, uh, and, and taking pictures of things that were you know about to disappear. So that there's something beautiful about that, like kind of going and having one last look at like your childhood before it's gone. But it's also depressing. It, it, it's it's sad. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of interesting because I, I will meet Korean friends of my age. I was born in 1961, so I'm a 386 generation. So Korean friends who are the same age, you know, we'll be talking and they'll say, oh, the house I grew up in was destroyed years ago. There's nothing left of the neighborhood. You know, they can't even find the street because the whole area has been bulldozed and turned into apartments Um, or their school is gone or, you know, whatever. Whereas in my case, um, when I went back to Ann Arbor in 2014, you know, I was able to go to the house that I grew up in. Um, my elementary school looks almost the same as it did in the 1960s, literally. And, you know, my high school is still there. Um, so it's, I could connect to those memories because they were still there. So by the, you know, as I lived in Ann Arbor, it, I didn't feel any particular need to connect to those memories because I knew they were there in a way. Um, whereas with the top side, I think it's, you know, all of all of your sort of, memories and history are gone and so that's one reason why i think the top so were popular with people because it was a chance to connect with things that they you know that their past that had disappeared mm-hmm. and as you mentioned the, the 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 knowing that it will disappear kind of wanting that a lot of it was wanting to document things that you know are going to disappear okay and so as we as we begin to wrap up i i do want to get a chance to to touch on a, a couple a couple interesting things uh with, with 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 your history walk leading so like you've you've led history walks some of them with the royal asiatic society korea branch uh including like sochan forest park dehangno and Changshin Dong. So I'm really curious about Changshin Dong. Tell us about that uh, history. Tell us about that depth. Side. That was one where um, Changshin Dong is a very is a in the history of um, sort of urban issues in Korea. It's actually an important area because it was scheduled to be turned into this, uh, you know, again redeveloped into a massive apartment block. Um, and over time, the residents decided that they didn't want to do that. And so the residents were the ones who took the initiative to cancel the plans to turn it into apartments. And that's not because it's a gourmet or expensive neighborhood. It's just because they didn't feel they would benefit from the um, redevelopment. And the, it's an interesting neighborhood. I think Jane Jacobs would really like it because 
it's an int it's an example of mixed use. There are a lot of small clothing factories there. There's a market there. There are you know residences. People who have no connection with the factories. People just you know young people. A lot of young people live there. Um, so it has that diversity of population, diversity of activity. It's also right near Tongdaemun, Tongdaemun subway station and that area. So it, going through Changshindong really helps expose a lot of the sides of Seoul, the sort of industrial side, the historic side, current issues about redevelopment. Um, so it was an interesting walk on, on many layers because it was a, you know, and also there's some Japanese colonial history there because part of the area was used as a, a mine to get, you know, uh, stone for construction at, uh, during the Japanese colonial period. So it, there's different layers of history there that I think are, you know, it relates more to urban, a lot of urban issues than some of the more curated areas like Bukchan or even such. Well, just, just one or two more things before we wrap up here. Like, I really wanted to ask you about one of these other areas of expertise that you have, which is pretty unique. Because um, like we mentioned before, over the years, you've been deeply involved with Hanuk preservation efforts. Uh, you, you even lived in a Hanuk for a period of time. You published a book, Hanuk, The Korean House with Nani Park and Jongkun Lee. Uh, so you're like kind of famous in Korean as the uh, Weguk who, you know, one of the Weguks who sort of is, is associated with Hanuk living. So tell us just, you know, kind of briefly a little bit more about that that period in your life. Okay. Um, it started basically when I, I, I moved to Korea in 2008 and that was from Japan. And I, that's when I took my job at Full National University. And then I, I lived in the professor's apartments, which I absolutely didn't like, you know, it was, I just, so I wanted to move out and I ended up moving to uh, Sochon. And at the time, Sochon was scheduled to be redeveloped. It's hard to believe now, but they were going to bulldoze a lot of Sochon and turn it into apartments. And, you know, I liked the neighborhood and I liked, um, you know, that it had a lot of Hanuk, but wasn't overkill in a way. It kind of had Hanuk mixed with other types of housing. So... You didn't have, you know, it, was, it had the, that, again, the Jane Jacobs diversity and uh, that was giving the neighborhood a lot of life. And so my, the, the Hanuk preservation efforts really started as a way to counter the push to redevelopment in Sochon. It wasn't that I had a romantic, you know, love of Hanuk. I don't have a romantic love of Hanuk. It, for me, it was a lifestyle choice to live in a Hanuk. But I'm not recommending that for anybody else. You know, I don't. Yeah, I don't think Hanuk. It, 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 so it's not a romantic love of Hanuk. More, it was that Hanuk stood as a symbol, or stood as uh, Hanuk were a way to talk about something of value that wasn't an apartment complex. Uh huh. Um, and so if you talk about Hanuk, then you're talking about some historic value, uniqueness, that kind of an interesting cityscape. And of course, Hanuk are, you know, one floor, which only one story. So when you have a, an alleyway of Hanuk, you automatically have human scale because you're not overwhelmed by buildings on both sides of the small, narrow alley. So right. Hanuk are used, for me, Hanuk was kind of, more than a type of housing from an architectural point of view, it was a symbol of fighting for diversity in Korean cities in the face of pressure for redevelopment. 
that's what wow. my interest in Kano started. Yeah. Okay. Well, so 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 really, just a pushback against the sort of uh, unstop, practically unstoppable um, sort of urban trends in Korea to just destroy and and build. Um, okay. Wow. So this wasn't just some quirky choice. This was this was uh, so this was real estate activism. Real estate activism. That's what it was. Wow. That's where the that's where the push came from. Okay. Not what I not what I would have guessed. That's so cool. That's really cool. Um, okay. Well then, so I guess my final question is, uh, I'm wondering how your perspective on Seoul has changed as someone who now is a visitor there, because you go back frequently, but that's different than actually living there, right? So, you know, what's it like coming back after being away for months at a time and seeing all kinds of changes compared to when you're someone whose life is actually anchored in the the day-to-day rhythms of, of living in a city? Well, it, it, that's a great question. Um... I think when I lived there, you know, obviously when I when I lived in Seoul, I was able to kind of keep up with people that I care about easier. You know, I could meet people more conveniently. So that obviously there's a personal benefit to living in the place because you're 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 rooted in there, uh, rooted in the place. Um, so that is different. When I go back, I, I still see people, but it, it has to be like, you know, fitting somebody into my schedule. And sometimes that doesn't always work. So there are people I can't see. So there's a bit of, you know, regret on that level. But as far as the changes and things, that's interesting because as Korea is now much, you know, Korea has become a, a developed, advanced you know, developed country, I've noticed in the last couple of visits, the pace of change is starting to slow down. Mm. Um, but that you, when you go back, you immediately notice the change. Um, when, whereas when you live there, it just kind of creeps up on you and it's a little bit, you're, you're more involved with your life. So it's harder to sort of frame the changes or appreciate the changes that happen um, compared to when you just pop yourself down or, you know, get off an airplane. So it's been, it's been so interesting talking about all this stuff with you and I really appreciate it, but you're, you're back in the U S now. Uh, you you were just in Korea last month. So I guess I, I, I guess my last thing is what are you working on these days and what can listeners expect to see from you in 2020? Well, um, right now I'm working, I'm, I'm just, I just started writing another book in Korean and that's not on cities. It's on how to learn foreign languages. Um, a lot of Korean readers, it, in, in 2018, I had a book out on the history of foreign language learning and um, teaching and learning. Um, and that actually sold more than the Exploring Cities book. <laughs> but, and that, so a lot of people asked me, you know, from related to that, <clears throat> the uh, book on foreign language teaching and learning, uh, sort of questions about how to learn foreign languages. So that's the gestation of this book that I hope to write and have out by next spring is to try to answer a lot of the questions that I got from the book in 2018 um, about how to learn languages and not like how to sit down and study, but more how to mentally approach learning languages. And there's the other important thing, not just learning languages as a student when you're young, but getting languages back that you've forgotten, <laughs> you know, like my Spanish, I'd love to get my Spanish back, you know, that kind of thing. Like maybe you've had a career and you're older and you want to get the language, you, you know, you want to get your language proficiency back or you didn't study when you were younger and you're older and you want to learn a language. So 
there'll be some things about language maintenance and language, you know, learning languages as a hobby or later in life and that kind of thing. Robert Fauser is an independent scholar and linguist and a longtime friend of Korea. You can find his new Korean language book, Exploring Cities, in bookstores around the country right now. Robert, thanks a lot for speaking with The Koreafile. It was great. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to episode 87 of The Korea File. Hear my other work on Canadian politics and society on the Unpacking the News podcast with Ricochet Media. Look for it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Andre Margoulet. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical independent voices you don't find anywhere else. And the show's produced and hosted on a completely volunteer basis. There is no funding for this show, so contributing a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash thekoreafile really helps to keep the show on the air. Your support helps to cover hosting fees and the hours of production and work that going into creating a research-heavy show like this. So help us, you know, reach 20 monthly supporters. That would be totally amazing. And I'll be able to begin releasing bonus material on the Patreon feed with outtakes from interviews like this one. The support from listeners like you is critical and allows the show to continue consistently coming out on a monthly basis. Please consider becoming a monthly patron just a dollar or two a month at patreon.com slash the Korea file find new episodes of the podcast on itunes spotify and rate or review the show wherever you subscribe it'll help new listeners discover the show i'll be back in late november with the next in a series of collaborative episodes with the seoul-based korea branch of history and culture organization the royal asiatic society until then i'm andre goulet thanks for listening <laughs>